What do ancient astronomers, mercenaries, athletes, and politicians have in common? Join your three lame hosts as they take an irreverent, lived-in look at disabled figures from ancient Egypt to the 20th century. Come take a wild and accessible ride exploring a side of history they probably didn't teach you in school. This This is Lame Lame History. History. Hello, my name is Kevin. I'm an author, photographer, and former TV show host who was born without legs. I'm a congenital amputee with double hip disarticulation, which basically just means that no femurs formed in the hip sockets of my pelvis. I live in Montana and typically walk on my hands or use a skateboard to get around. I'm Caitlin Michelle. My friends call me Katie, my students call me Miss, and my twin boys call me Mommy. The doctors who delivered me didn't know what to call me when I was born without a left forearm, and now I guess I can call myself a podcaster. Hello, my name is Scott. I've been in the plumbing, construction, and service industry for almost 20 years, including owning my own plumbing company. I'm a former competitive paraclimber. I was born with only part of my right hand and had several surgeries to Shriner Children's Hospital to increase my dexterity. I'm married to a fellow, now former paraclimber, and we have twin toddlers who outnumber us in digits and outrun us in general. Okay, cool. Welcome to Lame History, the podcast about how disability and disabled people help shape the world as we know it today. Today, we're talking about Olympic track and field star Hal Connolly. The year is 1956. Grace Kelly is the new Princess of Monaco. Elvis Presley is taking the rock and roll scene by storm. And the New York Yankees have just won the World Series. The civil rights movement is in full swing in the U.S. The Soviets have recently invaded Hungary. And the Cold War looms over all. And of course, it's the year of the Melbourne Summer Olympics in Australia, which is where we're headed. It's a warm Saturday afternoon at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, where the men's hammer throw final is in full swing, so to speak. Next up is 25-year-old American Hal Connolly, who set the world record just before heading off to the Olympic Games. He's tall and handsome, sure, but the most obvious thing about Hal's appearance is his left arm hanging sort of stiffly at his side and ending several inches before his right, the hand two-thirds the size of his other one. That is, until you look down at his feet and see the modified ballet shoes he's wearing. The Soviets aren't worried, and they've already ordered three large cakes to celebrate their expected wins in the hammer throw and two other athletic events. Unfortunately for them, however, They would not enjoy the sweet taste of victory because that disabled American dude in ballet slippers is about to set a new record and take home the gold for Team USA. And that's not even... Sorry. I'm just going to jump in there. So the Soviets were all excited thinking, oh, we got this. But they knew they were up against the world record holder? Yeah, but it kind of went back and forth. So there was a... Oh, no, no. Fuck them. (laughs) <laughs> there was a they had one in the other two categories of of athletics. Uh-huh. So they bought the three cakes, they ordered three cakes, and then there was this um I I don't even want to say his name because I'm gonna butcher it. Krisinov, Krisinov, okay. Uh Hal Connolly's rival. So while he was training actually, Hal pasted a picture of this other athlete like in his car. To like constantly remind himself to stay motivated and keep working. What were the uh, modified ballet shoes all about? Um, so it was a concrete uh ground for the event. I do believe I I don't know if I mentioned it later like, on. The like script. the circle that they throw in. 
Yes, but they had changed it recently from like grass to concrete. And so he wanted more to be able to have more purchase on the ground, something with more friction. So his aunt, Mary Connolly, um, his mom and his aunt used to be vaudeville dancers. And so he took a pair of his aunt's dance shoes and modified them for for the Olympics. Aunt must have had some big feet. <laughs> yeah, <'cause laughs> this, this six foot tall dude. Right. Oh, two two fifty plus pounds. Yeah, yeah. Um. So he was so, six foot two fifty and like all muscle though, right? Um, he kind of had like. like he kind of had like that mid-century body where they had a little bit of pooch, but like still in shape. I was about to say so nicely I'm delivered. Feet. That was like beautifully worded. <laughs> I, I'm six feet and I'm pushing two ten right now and not muscle. And I'm thinking, like Jesus, like this guy was probably stacked. I want to start describing people as like he's got like a mid-century body type. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> like. Looks super doughy, but got weird. Has weird grandpa strength. Yeah, like if you have like like Christopher Arm Reeve strength. Superman versus uh, who's the newer one? Um, Henry Cavill. Oh yeah, that yeah. One, Henry Cavill. Like if you look at them, their workout bods while they're Superman. Christopher Reeve's got a little more pooch. Good point. And I have seen photos of this Harold Connolly, and like he does look jacked. So I'm not not being fair here. You're right, he is jacked. He's just got it's not as toned, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean know. I mean this is when the Olympics are still an amateur competition. Like people had jobs and everything and they had to financially support themselves for the most part. Yeah, um, they, they weren't they weren't they weren't making their living purely awful being an Olympic athlete. Right, right. All right. So unfortunately for the Soviets they would not enjoy the sweet taste of victory because that disabled American dude in ballet slippers is about to set a new record and take home the gold for Team USA. And that's not even the most newsworthy Olympic prize Howell will take back with him after these games. All right, so Harold Vincent Connolly Jr. entered the world on August 1st, 1931 in Somerville, Massachusetts, uh, which one of my friends calls uh, his father uh, called Slummerville. At the time, why is, so why? I guess it's been gentrified because <laughs> oh, it's okay. a nice yeah, place yeah. now. Um, a little hipstery. Um, he was apparently born to break records since he was the heaviest baby born at the hospital, weighing in at nearly 13 pounds. Ooh. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. yeah, my ovaries just shriveled up. <laughs> almost twice the weight of our twin boys combined in birth. Yeah, yeah. That oh, that's a lot Lord. of baby. Came out okay. with like a full head of hair. Anyway, sorry, yeah. Keep going. Like Rapunzel hair, so it weighed a lot yeah. more, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, because oh, he was such Oh God. <laughs> yes, the heartburn. Because he was such a heavy baby, or maybe because of his position at birth, his left shoulder was dislocated and crushed the brachial plexus nerves in that arm. He had an experimental procedure and wore a leather and metal brace until he was six years old. And he spent much of his childhood doing physical therapy and working out to strengthen his left arm. Um, as a kid, his arm sustained 13 separate fractures and it would remain substantially weaker and smaller than his right arm throughout his life. So, yeah, he was so heavy that he crushed his own arm. Damn. 
So yeah, but like 13... think about the mom. Like this was a baby, right? Oh, so I, I assume the thirteen fractures occurred like during birth, right? Uh, no, it was or throughout no? his childhood. I guess it was. Oh, they were really? just, like, Easily broken. I guess that arm was just very, very weak and like didn't oh, develop okay. muscularly. Yeah. Okay. So Hal was raised in a working class Irish American family in Brighton, just outside Boston. They were big on sports, which made it suck especially hard when Hal was placed in an alternative phys ed program for disabled children. Um, this was the 30s and 40s when social attitudes about disability were very different from today's. So how they still had a separate phys ed program back then. Yeah, it is surprising. It was probably just like the oh, let's hide these different children from the rest of the world. Quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Hal faced a lot of discrimination and taunting in addition to being separated from his able-bodied peers. Um, this motivated him to push himself hard and participate in sports along alongside able-bodied kids. He was all about fitting in and detaching himself from any association with disability and disabled people. So definitely not the attitude that's conducive to any kind of advocacy or change for disabled people but okay no but within within context of the time i mean i can understand from like you know especially how old was it you know if he's in school you have a survivalist mentality you're not thinking in terms of like the conversation at large or your place in history like not necessarily trying to defend the stance now or anything but like i can totally get trying to like have an identity outside what people consider disabled especially if you're being run through you know institutions where you know that you associate disability with, you know, kind of lower living standard. That's true. And there wouldn't have been as many opportunities. And yeah, it wasn't, things were just rougher in terms of disability back then. When you were put in that box, there was no coming out of it, I guess. Right. So yeah, yeah, I guess I'm being a little hard on him. Sorry, Hal. <laughs> <laughs> in high school, Hal participated in track and football. And he only made the football team because he managed to hide his shorter left arm behind his back during the mandatory physical. I don't know if things were different back then or the doctor was just incompetent because how did that happen? How do you hide that? I don't understand. Well, that sounds like I've a doctor seen, looking the other way. Everything I've seen about doctors back then and from movies and because that's the, yeah, obviously completely historically accurate, the doctors were idiots. All of them? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what, they, they just got penicillin in the 20s. 20s. This is what 20th century movies taught me, okay? Uh, all right. I don't know. No, this, I... Was, this is kind of just rough. I mean, I would. I feel like the liability would be on that doctor if, you know, no, anything happened to this there kid. There was no such thing as liability back then. Are you kidding me? Yeah, they yeah, were just living in the dark that, ages. That doctor was like, <laughs> yeah, I just let him do what the fuck he wants. Yeah, I, I don't know. He apparently hit it and was successful at it. Anyway, Hal's sleight of hand. Sorry. Uh, oh, paid off. Okay. I know. Sorry. Paid off You're and he good. played the angry cripple role to perfection. He later said at that time in his life, I had to make the team on the first day of practice. I had to knock people over and I did. I had to be indefatigable. I was. I tried to hurt the guy in front of me. I tried to put him out. Every disabled person with a reputation for behavioral problems, for being tough and aggressive, is really just defending himself from the insults of others. And going back to what Kevin, you said, um, about the times that does make sense. Survivalist, survivalist mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very survivalist mentality. Yeah. In college, how was decent enough at shot put and discus? Hammer throwing wasn't even on his radar. That is until one day when he was waiting for a ride home 
and a very bored Hal figured he'd pass the time throwing the hammers back to the athletes during their hammer throwing practice, which is apparently called shagging. Ah. This is is American, I'll remind you. Um, (laughs) When he threw the hammers back with both his hands, Hal realized that he was throwing them farther than the actual hammer throwers were. And this began Hal's obsession with the only two-handed throwing event track and field has to offer. (laughs) Because, of course, the two-handed one. Um, actually, in that, um, I didn't write this down, but in that uh, time, it, it said that his first official record, or rather it wouldn't be official because it wasn't written down. So it wasn't even recorded because he threw uh, one of the hammers so hard <laughs> that it went outside the field and hit a car. And like the guy who owned the car, I mean, it was a parked car and there was no one in it, but the guy who owned the car was like, I gotta call police. And Hal was just like, no, no, get out of measuring tape. I think I broke a record here. Like, if I got this far, it broke a record. But anyway, that was never recorded. <laughs> I don't know about the police. <laughs> um, That's so, hammer time. <laughs> Is that the, yeah, right? Yeah. Is that yeah. Super Freak? That's Super Freak. No, wait, what? MC Hammer. MC Hammer, stop. Yes, Hammer time. You started humming stop. Super Freak. Oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, yeah, no. Da, 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 da. You, have, you have to remember something. Like, eight different people stole those well, stole those cords. So, <laughs> MC Hammer stole them. And I stole them. Everyone stole them. Come on. I still firmly believe that Ice Ice Baby had it before Under Pressure ever did. Anyway. Uh... After graduating from Boston College, which he paid for by himself, Hal became an English teacher and set his sights on the Olympics. And he actually uh, chose that profession because it would allow him to pursue his athletic dreams. Because I guess he thought because having two months off in the summertime was going to was gonna give him all this time. But he, I guess he didn't factor in that we have to do a lot of planning time because everyone thinks teaching is just, you know, going in, just teaching off the top of your head. But no, you got to plan for that. Oh, I like how you dropped into flashback mode just then. (laughs) (laughs) A note here on hammer throwing. If you're anything like me and have absolutely no background knowledge of the sport, you may be picturing a scene from a Thor movie or a night out at one of those axe throwing places where drunk people flinging, fling, sorry, or one of those (laughs) axe places where drunk people fling literal axes at the wall. But the hammer used in the hammer throw is Essentially, a 16-pound metal ball for the men's event, 8.8 pounds for women, attached to a wire with a handle at the other end. It does not look like a hammer. It does not. Um, the athlete stands in a net cage, which I think was a later addition, because at first it would oh, just yeah. like, go anywhere. You could just throw it anywhere. Well, <laughs> yeah. um, he stands Thank in a net you. cage and swings the hammer around and around three or four times, gaining momentum before realizing it. Sorry, gaining momentum before releasing it across the field. The athlete who has achieved the farthest distance wins. Uh, when you watch video footage of the hammer throw event, it looks incredibly graceful. Like the movement looks like an ice skater's axle. Uh, so it's not a huge stretch to see why Connolly wore ballet shoes. Like it does look a little bit like a dance. Oh, so what's funny about what you said is that you say it looks graceful. And this is the same thing with like any sport. When you watch people that are, like some level, even like medium levels of professional or, or more experience. It looks graceful when you know what you're doing. You want to watch some scary crap? 
watch up hammer throws gone wrong. You watch no, pole no, thanks. gone <laughs> wrong. And you I know, but this it when people don't fully understand it or haven't developed it yet, it looks scary as hell. This fundamentally okay. does look like a dance, though, like specifically oh, Jack yeah. spinning yeah. Rose in the Titanic. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Complete with ballet shoes. Right? Yeah. yeah. In the front of the ship as a, a world record distance. I kind of want to go through like all these hammer throw videos and just set it to music. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I actually looked up earlier today some um, to see if any, there were any like places where you can try out hammer throwing. And apparently it's not a thing that you can do. You can throw axes while you're drunk, but hammer throwing is not a thing. Liability laws have evolved. Oh, yeah, but, but drunk people throwing throw. axes. Yeah, I haven't seen any bar axe throwing stuff that you mentioned. Oh no, we have them all over here. Oh really? Oh yeah, yeah. we're, we're we really good at violence one. here. We we went to one, but they didn't have them. They just opened, and and they didn't have like their liquor license fully set yet, so they didn't it was have um, like in New York City. Yeah, it yeah, was in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Oh. In Brooklyn. I guess the assumption um, out here is that everyone has an axe, and so you can just go throw it into a tree anytime you want. I don't know. Yeah, yeah we don't have woods here. We don't have trees. Yeah. We don't have that. <laughs> so now we're going to go to what made him a celebrity. Winning a gold medal is newsworthy enough on its own, but it's not what made Hal a media sweetheart. In that Australian Olympic village, filled with elite athletes and removed from the routine of everyday life, Hal fell in love. Olga Fikatova was a young discus thrower who secured Czechoslovakia their only gold medal of the games. Tall and pretty, Olga was poised to be a Czech national treasure upon her return, but that image was shattered when she caught the eye of a certain champion hammer thrower with all-American good looks. Hal and Olga parted ways after that Olympics, but when Hal found himself in Prague towards the end of his European goodwill tour, they both realized that time and distance hadn't dulled their love for each other. So as the saying goes, first comes love and then comes an appeal to the Czechoslovakian president for permission to get married. Um, president Antonin Zapataki, not sure if I'm saying that name right, he wasn't exactly sympathetic to the young lover's cause. The world was in the midst of a cold war, and he knew that losing his country's only Olympic gold medalist to her American lover was not good for optics. Um... I think I, I texted you, Kevin, about this, but uh, I <laughs> I found on eBay this sports card for Hal. It was um oh yeah Olympics at, and it said Hal. It said Connolly, who last week fell in love with Olga Fikatova, and I was like, it was just so funny last week. <laughs> well, news moved slower back then. There wasn't a twenty four hour news cycle. It was like a eighteen month news cycle, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, but like still like falling in love in a week. I don't know. But that does go to show like how big of a deal that part of his like that how big of a deal that was to his story as a whole, if that was making out new sports cards sports cards. Well, yeah, but also they were both gold medalists. So like that was the crux yeah. of it. I I don't know. Do you think that if, if they had met at a different Olympic Games or like if they were just both athletes from different years or different games, would the attention beyond well, them that way in the sense of like would it be mentioned on the sports card that in the same olympics where you both won gold you also got married or fell in love rather then wasn't there the added like cold war politics stuff of you know these two coming together from different sides 
Yes. I mean, there was a lot yeah. of coverage. Yeah. Like so, the New York Times had like 14 <clears throat> stories on it. Oh, yeah. That's that's big enough to put on a sports card, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It was a big deal. <laughs> um, In the midst of the Cold War, the forbidden romance between American teacher turned sports hero Hal and Czechoslovakian medical student Olga, who secured the communist country's only gold medal at that games, warmed hearts and gained public attention. It wasn't long before their love story played out in the political arena, with even the U.S. Secretary of State personally commenting on the affair. When asked about the government's take on the situation during a press conference, John Foster Dulles responded, well, we believe in romance. Eventually, the Czech president relented and granted his permission for the couple to marry. So, yeah, they got permission for this. It's like little kids asking parents, except it's not parents. It's it's heads of state. <laughs> Oh, it uh, had to be John Foster Dulles. Oh, and he was so creepy because oh. I didn't, I didn't include it here, but he's he said something super creepy to Hal, where he was like, "Ooh, like good thing that like you secured yourself a nice prize. Everyone should be so lucky." Blah blah blah, like creepy. Um, <laughs> secured yourself a nice prize. Yeah, that's got yeah, some like gross. medieval raider uh, vibes to it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't. I hate it. Um. Hal and Olga's journey to the altar was covered extensively by the media. Uh, on March 27th, 1957, less than a year after they began their whirlwind... Sorry. On March 27th, 1957, less than a year after they began their whirlwind romance in the Melbourne Olympic Village, Hal and Olga were married. It was meant to be a quiet wedding, but apparently the public never received that memo. Over 25,000 people flooded the old town square in Prague, causing a huge traffic jam just to celebrate Hal and Olga's nuptials. Like, Olga was actually late because she was caught in the traffic jam to her own wedding. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there were different sources reported different things. So if anywhere from 25,000 to 40,000 people, which is a big spread, but okay. And Prague's not that big. Like, that center square is fairly large, but, like, all the streets around it are super narrow. Like, yeah, that must have been shoulder to shoulder. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. The pictures are really crazy. Like, everyone's just, like, packed in there. Uh, yeah. And my fa- it was my favorite headline. Like, the New York Times article was called, All Prague Agog. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh... um, okay, so that the couple, they had three ceremonies that day. One civil, one Catholic, and that was for Hal, and one Protestant for Olga. <laughs> and as if they hadn't faced enough hurdles and resistance to their union already, the Vatican announced that Howe would be automatically excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church for having a Protestant ceremony, a sentiment that was repeated by the priest who married them on the day of the wedding. So, yeah, I guess the Vatican, the Pope was like, uh, you know, the American uh, government is weighing in on this and the Czech government is weighing in on this i guess i should say something too wait so does that is that why they did the catholic ceremony first (laughs) no they did the civil first and catholic then protestant but even with those three ceremonies the the vatican still said he would be excommunicated because he married a protestant Uh, okay Uh, yeah so like if if he hadn't known that he wouldn't be excommunicated but the vatican made it very clear including publishing an article in the New York Times <laughs> that he would be excommunicated. You know it's bad when the Vatican excommunicates you via the New York Times. 
That's so weird. I feel Maybe like that's there's... how you know you made it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it's super weird. All in all, the day seemed to be a success. Both were all smiles in their wedding photos. Al with his hair neatly slicked back and Olga in a simple but elegant white dress and wide-brimmed hat, standing only an inch shorter than her new husband's height of six feet, even in her flats. I always appreciate when someone wears flats to a wedding. <laughs> Heels are painful. <laughs> um, fellow Olympic track and field power couple Dana and Emil Zadepec, who were also beloved by the Czech public, stood beside the couple and served as witnesses to the vows. Uh, one of the things that Olga said in an interview later on was that she wasn't sure if the crowd was there for her and Hal, or like if they were there because they'd never seen an American before, uh, or because they were there for Emil Z- uh, Zadepec, who was a very famous Czech runner. Anyway, uh, that sounds a lot self-deprecating, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I, I get it. I mean, Olga's a total badass, and in doing the research, I found myself almost down a rabbit hole more on like all that stuff than on house stuff and i was like oh i gotta bring it back here she was really cool she's actually still alive as of this recording so didn't she have a memoir she did but i did not buy it so um i well it's like out of print and i saw the like the couple of links you sent me and like yeah it wasn't wasn't something that was easily retrievable no it wasn't online um some places didn't even have it, and then it was pretty expensive on eBay, so did not order that. But I, I read as much as I could. Also, um, Hal had unpublished memoirs, and I could not find those anywhere. Oh, interesting. I know, and articles kept saying, like, referring back to these unpublished memoirs and what he said, and I was like, ugh, I can't find those. Um, yeah. So it's only 35 cents to their names after Hal returned a hammer he just bought in order to afford his new bride's ticket. The newlyweds headed to the U.S., where Hal planned to find a better-paying teaching job in Boston, and Olga hoped to finish medical school. At the time, she was a fourth-year medical student. Um, it ended up not working for her in the U.S. because she did take the exams to get in, and she missed it by, like, a tenth of a point. And then someone at the school told her, oh, why do you want to be a doctor? You're too pretty to be a doctor because patriarchy. Uh, um, but anyway... She had a good life in spite of it. In 1959, the couple moved to Santa Monica, California, where Hal worked as an English teacher and Olga gave birth to their first child, a baby boy they named Mark. Hal had his sights set on competing in the 1960s, sorry, Hal had his sights set on competing in the 1960 Olympics in Rome, but Olga was in full mommy mode with her main exercise consisting of daily walks pushing her new baby stroller. Okay, I know that people experience pregnancy differently, but even in the best situations, it is physically demanding and changes your body significantly in a very short amount of time. And I don't, I don't blame Olga for spending more of her energy on her son than on trying to psych herself up for another Olympic Games. Like, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was way more into it than she was at that time. Um, additionally, training for and competing in international athletic competition was expensive. And the Connollys had just experienced a cross-country move and the birth of a new baby. Oh, it should be noted at this point, and I'm happy to to put something in at the start, but I have no relation to these Connolly people. They seem really lovely. I would love to be part of the family, but yeah, no, I, uh, I was kind of surprised you. when you... <laughs> I was surprised when you picked this as a subject. I was like, what? Uh, uh, uh. I was but. researching someone else, and then I 
I saw this guy and I was like, oh, let me store him in the bank for later to do him later. And then I started reading about him. And I was like, no, I got to. No. I just got sucked into it. His story was it's so good. Such a, it's such a cool story. Sorry, continue. Cool, cool. Um, the New York Times even published an article in early 1960 about how the couple would likely skip the games because they couldn't afford to take the time away from their jobs. So yeah, oh. that was a whole article. They cannot afford to go to the Olympics. Where was John Foster Dulles when they needed money to go to the Olympics? Did right. he want to babysit the kids? No, no, he did not volunteer that at all. Still, Hal and Olga seemed to find a way to make it work because they both represented the U.S. in the 1960 Olympics in Rome. Olga was comp- uh, Olga was prohibited from competing for Czechoslovakia, and she was stunned by the way that the Czech athletes had these negative reactions towards her. Uh, it wasn't until years later that she would find out that the Czech government was spreading false information about her, depicting her as a traitor who turned her back on her homeland. That was not true. Basically, when she went to the U.S. after she married Hal, uh, she wanted to continue competing for Czechoslovakia, but they were like, no, no, no. But then they, they kind of spun it like she was the one who turned her back on her country. Oh. Yeah. Sneaky, sneaky. In Rome, Hal came in eighth place and Olga in seventh, which is super impressive after just having a child. She um, basically had a child every time like, between all the Olympics. Like, they timed it out pretty well. Um, two years later, Hal and the family moved to Europe. They settled down in Finland, where Hal taught English as a second language, ESL, and coached Finnish hammer throwers. Over there, Olga gave birth to twins, Jim and Maria, in early 1963. Yeah, twin pregnancies are so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I assume you have some insight that other people don't. Just a little, just a little. <laughs> Although Hal and Olga both longed to compete in the 64 Tokyo Olympics, Olga felt that she was too out of shape because, you know, she'd just grown two babies plus two placentas inside her body, uh, which is totally fair. The couple also didn't have much time to train, what with their busy schedules and growing family. But serendipitously, Olympic officials from Tokyo visited them in Finland and invited both of them to attend the Tokyo International Sports Week. That was the official name for it, the Tokyo International Sports Week which was meant to be a quote-unquote rehearsal for the actual games. So this trip to Japan motivated Hal and Olga to really throw themselves back into training for Tokyo as much as they could. At the 1964 Olympics, Hal came in 6th place and Olga in 12th in their respective competitions. The fact that she placed at all after just giving birth to twins. Right? I'm just saying. That's amazing. That's intimidating. <laughs> it, it is. Alyssa, I couldn't walk down the stairs when I had my kids. <laughs> Um, perhaps the most disappointing Olympic Games for the couple was still yet to come. After the couple welcomed their fourth child, daughter Nina, in 1966, they went right back to training for the 68 Olympics in Mexico City. But a technical mistake meant Howe was eliminated in the qualifying round, even though his score would have technically been high enough for him to advance. Um, Howe, who was a veteran of the sport and well acquainted with the rules, simply forgot and stepped out the side of the hammer throw ring when he should have walked out the back. And so that completely disqualified him. Olga oh, fared better, coming in sixth place in her category. What were you going to say? You choked, Harry! That's, that's so that's weird. Like, they have technical rules uh, like that. Olga was super upset about the rules disqualifying him. She was not happy about it. And she did really well. She did in sixth. Hal and Olga continued to devote as much time as possible to training, taking turns with domestic tasks and child rearing while the other trained, so they never actually trained together. 
They, they survived on a combined monthly salary of $900 and even hired a neighbor to babysit their children while they were at the trials. But Hal failed to make the 1972 Olympic team, though Olga was chosen to carry the flag during the opening ceremony. So yeah, how, how, um, old, how old were they about this time? Um, I will tell you in one second. So that is the 1972 Olympics. I have this. I saved it. Hold on. It's in my notes. It's just <laughs> a different part of my notes. In... 1972 it was in munich um olga was 39 and that would make oh shoot because he didn't make it so i can't remember what his age was but they're pushing the upper limit of an olympic career basically oh that's like a totally normal yes no this is this is a sport where you can be older oh really okay it is. There were people who would compete into their 40s and how competed into their 40s. There were some who competed into their 50s. Um, but yeah, it's it's a sport where you could do it older. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, it's like curling. You know, curling where they're like 100 and like really slow. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, you're keeping it. You're keeping, it. Not... keeping it. Keeping it. <laughs> keeping it. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm sorry, curlers. Um, is that what you call someone who curls? Crawlers? I would imagine. Like the donut? Oh, no, that's crawler. <laughs> um, in 1975, star-crossed pair whose forbidden romance once caught the attention of world leaders from both sides of the Iron Curtain divorced. Yeah. They were oh, married no. for nearly 20 years, during which they had four children and competed in three Olympic Games. I want to note here that I don't know the exact year of how and Olga's divorce because different sources reported different years. So they divorced. Oh. I know. I, I was trying. No, I no, didn't no, get I any official records. And yeah. So they divorced in 1973 or 74 or 75. So you have a three-year range there. Uh, in any case, Hal went on to marry again in either 1975 or 1976. So not long after, depending on the source either 75 or 76, but yeah, it does feel a little close, a little tight. Um, and I, I did see that he reportedly had met this woman while he was with Olga. So I don't know. I'm not, I'm not trying to speculate. I'm just saying it's a weirdly tight. Yeah. Yeah. Time period. Anyway, Hal tied the knot with Pat Winslow, who is also a celebrated Olympian and American track star turned coach. They went on to have two children together, Adam and Shannon, and raised Bradley, Pat's son, from a previous relationship. So on one of these uh, rabbit holes, I was trying to find out what year Shannon was born in. So I found their whole wedding, like her whole wedding. Oh, my God. It was so beautiful. She got married in New York at a museum, right? And because she and, and her husband, they were really into reading and art, like, all the tables were named after famous authors. It was really cute. They had like a live violinist playing. Anyway, that's how deeply I went on these. Yeah, that's. <laughs> it was a nice wedding. Um, Good. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I didn't do a whole lot of research on Pat. Um, she also goes by different names. And some she's Billy Pat and some she's just Pat. I don't know why, but I'm going to call her Pat. Uh, there was this one time that this... Uh, one of Hal and Pat's old friends that they used to like double date and hang out uh, wrote this article that and, and included this anecdote that one time they went to this movie they were going to see they saw um, a movie about 
I was it Mozart or Beethoven? Fuck, I don't remember. <laughs> Hold on, I really need to get that right. That's that's a big deal. Yeah. I can't just I can't just mix up my composers. Okay. Yes, it was a, it was Immortal Beloved, a movie about the life of Beethoven, and and it was a pretty crowded theater. There's a scene in the movie where they show the cathedral in Prague, and uh-huh. Hal just loudly blurts out, "That's where I got married," and Pat goes, "Not to me." Oh, <laughs> oh boy, yeah, that, that there's maybe a quiet car ride on the way back. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I just, I wish I was one of those people in the theater listening and be like, oh. <laughs> but it's so, it's funny. I had to include that. Um. Anyway, so Hal retired from his career in education in Santa Monica and then moved his family to the East Coast, where he became director of the Special Olympics in 1988. So that's a whole other career for him. So it was time for the hammer. Sorry. It's interesting you mentioned that because he like. Especially when you said early on that like, he really tried to divorce his identity from disability, that he was willing to kind of go back on that in his later years. Yeah, it was time for this hammer thrower to come full circle. How once oh, again found... Sorry. Like a circle <laughs> a hammer throw. I don't know if that uh, was intentional. It was. How <laughs> found himself face-to-face again with his relationship to disability. And how the disabled kid who tried so hard to fit in and distance himself from any mention of his arm, as you said, had become how the disabled man who'd broken records and won hearts and was ready to spend his 60s working at the Special Olympics advocating for disabled children in sports. He reflected on this in a 1991 New York Times interview. Times are different. They didn't treat the disabled with dignity then. I couldn't stand to be treated differently. I wish I had been able to talk about my arm then. I guess I might have helped some people. So yeah, so we probably really... owe a lot of our, uh, you know, the 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 world we kind of stepped into with regards to disabled sports to this guy. Yeah, yeah, That's we really do. Cool. Yeah, he was oh. he was huge in this field. Yeah, how uh, grew quite comfortable with talking about topics often considered to be difficult, like disability and even steroids. He was one of the first world-class athletes to speak openly about his use of steroids, claiming that they were widely used by athletes in those days before they were banned. He said at, at that time, anything that someone could do to get a leg up in their sport, they would do. Like, that's how much they loved their sports. He did frame it that way. Um, and he did say, however, that the steroids weren't meant to substitute hard work and training. They were just an addition to it. And he acknowledged that they made him more aggressive and caused other health issues and athletes he knew. Um, Hal retired from his position at the Special Olympics in the late 90s, but never actually retired from hammer throwing, coaching young athletes and founding the website hammerthrow.org, which served to promote the sport to new generations of hammer throwers, and it's still up and running as of this recording. Even in his sunset years, Hal was still working out regularly, setting his sights on the 2016 Olympics for the young hammer thrower he had been training. So the first time I read that, I was like, is he coming out of retirement in his 70s, in his 80s, actually, at that point? No, it's, it's, he's training an athlete. Um, he said at the time, I'd rather die on the bike than sitting around. On August 18th, 2010, Hal was at the gym working on his normal routine when he took a bad fall off his exercise bike and died. And so poetically 
ended the life of Hal Connolly. An American, <laughs> yeah, right. an American icon who introduced the world to throwing shoes, softened political tension with his whirlwind love story, and lived a life so entwined with sports that his legacy still lives on in the world of competitive hammer throwing. That's awesome. And it seems like he had such an impact well beyond hammer throwing, like just into the conversation of disabled sports in general. That's, yeah, quite the change from early on and, I don't know, quite quite the journey to get there. Well, so, just curious, so he never took part in, like, Paralympics? No, and I, I didn't look into it enough, but I don't know if the Paralympics were a thing. Then they, at the time. I, I, was, I just looked it up because I was curious. The Paralympics started in 1960, but, like, we know enough about Paralympics to know that, like, they don't just automatically have the exact same sports. And it's, right. taken, yeah. time for, it's taken time for their whole uh, catalog of sports to grow. So, like, you know, even even us being you know, former competitive climbers, you know, we're exciting watching um, climbing having just recently joined the Olympics for the 2020 Olympics. And we're like, we were wondering, like, well, when can it join the Paralympics? And we know that the movement to try to get it in by 2028 has been a thing, but it's also, you know, no idea if that's actually going to happen. I wouldn't be surprised if it was 2032, you know. And that's yeah. with gro- quick growing support. You know, back then. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows what it would have been then? Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds a little crazy. Um, oh, another thing that I thought was interesting, at least a little curious. Um, I had previously thought that. Um, oh, what's his face? Uh, South African leg guy. Oh, Oscar Pistorius. Oh, Pistorius. Yeah. Yeah, I had previously thought Oscar Pistorius before he was a murderer. Um was the first, you know, disabled athlete in the Olympics. And this story just proved me completely wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised at all that um, that there were others before Pistorius. I think the big thing with Pistorius was the fact that he was coming in using prosthetic devices that people were questioning if that gave him an advantage or not, which it, it's a... It's a whole funny round of questioning, and there's a lot of viewpoints on it. But obviously, he, you know, he did get to compete, and you know, no, he didn't podium. But it, it was still it, people had to, had to ask those questions. They're not; they weren't asking that question with Hal Connolly. Well, didn't he use like a modified glove for his weaker arm? I've seen uh, some photos with him and having some sort of like black glove on, but I'm not sure if that's just standard to the sport or not. I didn't read anything about the glove he used. I do know that his his hand and his arm did play a role in um, the podium aspect when when they were um, giving out the medals and you know they were playing the American national anthem. Uh, people in the stands were shouting at him, "Raise your arms in victory!" Like you know the V for victory thing. Yeah, oh, yeah. And that's not about was, his performance, though. No, it wasn't about his performance, but he. I forgot to include this in the script. So I'm saying it now. <laughs> But anyway, it was a big moment in his life because people were, were asking him to, you know, raise his hands in victory and, and like a V for victory. And he refused and he just held up one hand and kind of waved. Um, and he'd always, he always came back to that moment and just, you know, a lot of people saw it as him being, you know, this rebel and this guy who was kind of surly and aggressive and in line with that but really it was he was so terrified 
of yeah. people seeing his arm that yeah. he just didn't feel he yeah, could. It was just undeserved shame. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So he went we, from that to someone who acknowledged disability and worked on a way well, to we, we all we all know something about that. We all know growing with our disabilities as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's a yeah. it's a journey. Character growth. That's like the best type of story. That's an awesome pick, Miss Caitlin. Mrs. Yeah. Caitlin. Sorry. Oh well, thank <laughs> you. Yeah. Um now we get to the fun part. On the inspirational scale, would you give him a gold, silver, or a bronze medal? Or does he not oh. podium at all? Oh my oh a theme. Huh? It is. Well, I want to go first on this one. Um so I think on the inspiration scale, given the time, the the levels that he achieved, his character growth in dealing with his own disability and, and understanding how the world is changing and wanting to be a part of it and help other disabled people. I'm gonna go platinum. We're going beyond gold here. It's not a medal. It's not a medal. It's not a medal. That would disqualify him. Oh, no. He's getting a platinum medal. He's beyond beyond the level of goal achievement. Well, there you go. (laughs) Hal Connolly gets the world's first Olympic platinum medal in the sport of inspiration. There you go. I'm going to go and give him a gold. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, as as much as the the trope of inspiration is kind of a... A tough one to deal with sometimes. Yeah, it's he definitely exemplifies that just, you know, and how much he like he overcame physically, obviously. But to me, the thing that really stands out is how much he overcame in terms of his own confidence issues and just like place in the world, um, which is, in my mind, kind of the harder thing to do. Um, So, yeah, that's that's really cool. See, the gold that I'm giving him is really for wearing ballet shoes in front of everyone at the Olympics. (laughs) <laughs> Olga also gets a, an honorary gold, well, a, 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 a gold medal of same value for pushing out a whole bunch of babies and still doing Olympic training and kicking ass. Oh, oh yeah. she was incredible. And later on, like she, well into her 80s, she was a personal trainer. And I mean, she's retired now, she's 90, but well into her 80s, she was a personal trainer. She became an environmentalist, and she was always really outspoken about her beliefs and trying to make the world a better place. She was so badass. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's Life of Harold Connolly. Thanks for joining us. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Lame History and on Instagram at Lame History Podcast. Questions? Want to send us a note or have an idea for a show? Reach out to us at lamehistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're always interested in hearing about additional research, corrections, or episode ideas. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.